0: Love, talk Radio.
1: Hello, and welcome to Gigabit Nation, Broadband Talk Radio. I'm your host, Craig Fettles, and I want to thank everyone today for being in the audience and listening. Uh, we are here, as always, uh, helping public, private, and uh, nonprofit organizations uh, get broadband everywhere it needs to be in America. So I'm pretty sure that most folks who um, listen to my show, especially those who have been listening for a while, are familiar with um, Blair Levin, if not directly, at least with his work on the uh, national broadband plan. And he's been a guest uh, on the show, uh, actually, in, in the past. And so we have been in touch over the, the last couple of years. And definitely I can't thank a few people, you know, few uh, other people who are more wired into what's going on with national policy and broadband developments uh, than, than Mr. Levin. And I'm very happy to have him on the show today. We are going to talk about uh, his latest book, which is a co-authored work, and uh, really hitting hard on some of some key issues of national broadband policy. So, Blair, welcome back to the show.
0: Well, thank you very much, Craig. It's a great pleasure to be back here, and congratulations on uh, on. on uh, your radio endeavor—it's really been great to listen to a lot of your shows. You're doing great work.
1: Thank you very much. Thank you. It's been a fun ride, I will have to admit, and uh, it's definitely not one that I had uh, anticipated two years ago. So it's it's been it's been good. I, I really can't good. complain, and uh, you know it helps me keep my uh, fingers into everything that's going on. And, right. uh And so your work caught my attention because I was trying to figure out. Were
0: you just not busy enough that you had to go? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um I was actually looking forward to a really uh, nice, pleasant summer. Uh, you know, you as you and I have talked before. I'm doing a lot of work with the Gig U project and uh, a similar project that's spectrum based called Air U, uh, mm-hmm. as well as a few other projects. But um, uh, but over the summer, you know, I, I have. Uh, been a friend, an employee, uh, and a collaborator with Reed Hunt, who was chairman of the FCC in the first Clinton term and into the second uh, for many, many years. Uh, Reed is a really brilliant and tough-minded guy who is really wonderful at tackling issues. And over the summer, we started talking about what was kind of odd to us, this disconnect between the world of technology we see, and he's on the board of Intel and several other Silicon Valley companies and is doing a lot of work in clean energy. Um, you know, in in Silicon Valley, the fundamental question is, how do we produce um, better, faster, cheaper? Uh, how do we get uh, things that we traditionally do one way, how do we transform the world from one where we're delivering atoms to one where we're delivering bits and chips and bandwidth, but satisfying human needs and uh, in a variety of ways that are just spectacular. If you kind of go back just 15 years ago, most of what we do in the course of a day uh, couldn't have been done 15 years ago. You know, mm-hmm. and and a lot of the book was written while I was on vacation, uh, but maybe this is a bad thing because if you have a computer, you're you, in a lot of places you have access to all kinds of information and you could write the books on vacation. <laughs> maybe that's a bad thing. I don't know. But my, my point is that the, the fundamental thrust of Silicon Valley seems to be faster, cheaper, better. In the meantime, here in Washington, D.C., and you now see this very clearly with the fiscal cliff debate, the debate is really about – how do, we have to, how do we raise taxes and reduce the level of services that government provides, um, primarily in entitlements? And it struck us that this debate ought to incorporate some of what Silicon Valley and the technology community does, because we should be trying to figure out, instead of how do we tax more and provide less, How do we move services to become faster, cheaper, better? That really should be the primary question, not only in terms of government effectiveness, but also in terms of the economy, because at the end of the day, the current debate is about how do you reduce the debt-to-GDP ratio to a sustainable level. And you really can't do that unless you have a growing economy, or I should say the best way to do that is to have a growing economy, as we did in the 1990s. And the best way to have a growing economy, uh, as a lot of economists would tell you, is to have a change out in inputs generally driven by technology that increase the ability of an economy to produce goods and services more effectively.
1: Mhm, so it is basically looking at technology as an economic development engine
0: absolutely yes, saying, and what okay. we what we do is we 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 we're, we're pointing out that um you know the, the the goal of stabilizing the debt to gdp ratio is very important and needs to be done mm-hmm. but if you go back and you look at the clinton years what you discover is that it wasn't um it wasn't the early days that really produced what we now think of as the golden budget surpluses but rather it was the extraordinary and surprising growth in the second term that really drove those surpluses. And what CBO, which is the Congressional Budget Office, missed in making its estimates was that the advent of the wireless and Internet revolution would drive economic growth to be far faster and far better than what they had anticipated. We basically had about a trillion dollars a private sector investment into rebuilding the country 's communications networks uh, to enable wireless and internet communications and that investment, the jobs that that created, as well as the increased productivity in so many other ways as and you know the development of applications and devices and so many other things, um, really created a wonderful economy uh, for the country you know that 's not to say that there wasn 't uh, a fall, right? I mean, there was, mm-hmm. of course, the, um, the, the the dot-com bubble, but the country benefited then and continues to benefit today from an enormous investment in hard assets, fiber, um, towers, and other kinds of things. And so the question is today, is there a similar um, uh, area where the private sector can put huge new capital to work in ways that are not only productive in terms of profitable, but are productive in terms of uh, increasing the standard of living for everybody um, and driving sustainable long-term economic growth. And and we think that the two areas where that's obviously true would be in clean energy and in what we think of as bandwidth delivered goods and services.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, in the, um, uh, an article that you guys and uh, in... Um, the San Jose paper where you're talking about this, you actually outlined four components of a plan. I mean, the the overarching goal was, uh, I think, improving um, Internet access or or general technology, and then also, if I can summarize uh, uh, properly, um, making better use of energy management. And then from that you have four kind of sub, I guess, parts of the plan, Am I am I re- rehashing this correctly?
0: Um, well, what we do in uh, – what, what we talk about in the San Jose Mercury op-ed um, is uh, a chapter – the final chapter of the book. Um, in the first chapter, we lay out kind of the, the case for technology to be part of any discussion of the country's future economics. In other words, we, we basically say, look – you need to have a growth strategy. A growth strategy is probably going to be a technology strategy. What is it? We think that the places that kind of what you're looking for, again, are places that can absorb a lot of capital that need to be rebuilt and can provide productivity gains throughout the economy, and that's clearly uh, clean tech and uh, bandwidth-delivered goods and services. And then in the second chapter, we lay out the, the bandwidth part, and the third, we lay out the energy part. And in the fourth, what we say is, As part of the fiscal cliff debate, if you think of it the way we think of it, what are some trades that could be done that really should appeal to both sides? They don't give either side 100% of what they want, but they give both sides something that they want, um, so that we can drive this agenda uh, through compromises with the um, uh, that, that serve the goals that both sides have articulated. So that, for example, um we suggest that, you know, the, the Democrats uh, know that we need to raise more revenues and have suggested that uh, we do so by letting the Bush tax cuts on high-income Americans expire. The Republicans have said, we'll put more revenues on the table, but we don't want tax rates to go up. And we suggest, well, why don't we do this? Why don't we have an emissions tax? Because we know as a society, and it's really interesting how – Every day you're reading about this fiscal cliff debate. You're also reading some story about how climate change is actually worse than we thought it was going to be, and we think it's going to be very, very, very bad, um, uh, as in catastrophic. uh, And it's actually happening faster, and and it it is going to be worse than we had thought. Why don't we tax the thing that we know we don't want, which is uh, dirty emissions, and use that as an offset against taxes, in other words, we don't want to you shouldn't tax the thing you want, which is work. We do need to have um, a price on carbon emissions that actually reflects its real cost to the world, and so that would be a conceptual trade off. Um, there are three others that we mentioned, which I'm happy to go through if you want uh, in the book but the but the fundamental idea is let's tie. Let's have a growth strategy that's based on technology, and let's bring this into the discussion about the so-called fiscal cliff and the grand bargain.
1: Mm-hmm. Now, you're in Washington, and I'll be there with you in another couple of days as we get ready for this um, roundtable on the economy uh, and broadband's impact on, on the economy. <clears throat> what kind of reception have you been getting since the book has come out Uh, And I I should say, now that we are past the election, because I can only imagine what the feedback was like before November, but as as people kind of have sorted themselves out and picked up and, you know, recovered or started to recover, um, have have you been hearing some, you know, feedback on your ideas?
0: Well, both Reed and I have been talking to a lot of different people about it. Um, You know, I don't think this is going to end up <laughs> you know, maybe we should have titled it, you know, Fifty Shades of uh, Dirty Coal or something. But um uh you know we're not we're not looking for best sellers in that kind of category. Uh we've had some very fascinating conversations with all sides about this. But I but I would have to say that um one of the things that seems uh, obvious to us, and we as we were writing this over the summer, we were making certain projections, such as we believed Obama would win. Um, we believe the fiscal cliff debate would would dominate this period of time. We also thought, and, and I still believe, that what's going to happen is that either right before the end of the year or right after the end of the year, there will be essentially a fix to the so-called fiscal cliff uh, that we might think of as phase one. That is, uh, taxes may temporarily go up on everybody, but... Eventually, there will be a fix that will bring taxes back to the Bush-era tax cuts for Americans earning less than $250,000. Taxes will increase for those above that level. The sequestration will not uh, – it may happen temporarily, but it won't really happen. Um, But there will be some kind of mechanism to have a broader discussion about – uh, we were really moving from a fiscal cliff kind of discussion to a grand bargain kind of discussion
1: mm-hmm.
0: it's in that context that our ideas really we hope to have them uh as part of the debate. I think this um debate that's going on right now that you know John Boehner said the other day is going nowhere. you know I suspect that um there's a way in which he's accurate and there's a way in which he's not accurate. Uh, certainly, from the on the surface, he's quite accurate. Uh, I think below the surface, there are lots of discussions going on. But I think those discussions are complicated enough um, that you're not going to broaden the kinds of topics that are on the table. You're trying to narrow it so that we can avoid what people, you know, what Paul Krugman writes about today is an austerity bomb. Mm-hmm. But it's really more in the January, February timeframe that we'll... we'll have a, a you know? We'll have a better feel for whether these are ideas which um, um, can attract the attention of policymakers or not. Hello. Hello. Yeah. Can
1: you
0: oh, hear yeah.
1: me?
2: Uh,
0: okay. So I thought. Yeah. I thought, I thought I lost you for a second. Mm. Um, so in, so in any event, you know, I'm not. Uh, I'm you know, I, I think our attitude is um, it's always an uphill battle to get. Um, uh, ideas into a policy debate. Uh, Rita and I actually have a pretty good track record between the two of us for doing it at various points in our career. Um, I would say there's some, there's a lot of different ideas, not just in the fourth chapter of the book, uh, but there are a lot of different ideas, some of which require Congress, some don't, that we're talking about with a lot of different folks. And uh, but the real measure of whether we're successful in being able to convince people to put these on the table, um, I think, is going to be in the first quarter of next year. Not really right now.
1: I'm going to, there was an interesting question posted in the chat, but I'm going to lead up to that with a, a couple of preliminaries. Discussion about broadband in the, you know, sort of in the macro sense, or I should say, you know, um, the, econo- the economy, we're talking about the U.S. as a whole. <clears throat> How does this stuff get translated down to the trenches of local economic development? Because I feel like, You know, there's a lot that comes out of Washington in terms of, you know, grand vision for the whole country. But then it's left to quite literally that, you know, down to the local level. You know, everything is really local in terms of implementation of projects and processes and so forth. But how do we kind of bridge from the global to the local?
0: Yeah. It's a great great question and it's a really important one. First of all, I would say that traditional economic activities – as you suggest, really are, there's an awful lot of localism that's important to that. And, you know, in my work, um, in, in my day job, which actually is most of my time, uh, working on the Gig.U project, uh, what we've seen is what you would expect, which is that those communities that have local leadership um, will be able to accelerate the deployment of next generation networks and services. And no matter what we do on a national level, if you don't have local leadership, um, the, the communities without local leadership that really care about the issue, they're not going to benefit from that movement, right? I mean, so where we've seen progress in Maine and Florida and Illinois and Ohio, uh, and there'll be a few others we'll be announcing, I hope, soon, um, you you really see it. It's not really a function so much of the national effort, uh, though we hope to be as helpful as possible it 's really a function of local leadership, and right. economic development is always a big driver of that so I think that that 's really important in the book um we 're you know most of the money that we think the private sector can really spend in terms of kind of you know big new hundreds of billions of dollars in networks that 's really on the clean energy side because actually over the last fifteen years, we have fundamentally Redone the communications networks of this country pretty much all communications that are now being done, i mean even this phone call, I'm willing to bet most of the network that it travels over uh was was essentially rebuilt over the next fifteen years, and we need a similar rebuilding in terms of clean energy of those kinds of networks where we think we do think that there's some networks it would be great to redo or to upgrade including uh, the high-end gigabit networks like what you focus your show on, what, what Chattanooga has done, as Tom Friedman wrote about the other day. Obviously, a lot of news coming out of Kansas City and Google. Uh, very excited about what they're up to, Bristol, Tennessee. Um, again, several U projects. Um, so we think that uh, – and it's also interesting to see what Mayor Bloomberg is doing in New York and Mayor Emanuel is doing in Chicago at large – but these are all kind of localized efforts, uh, and there are some things the federal government can do that would be good to uh, create an environment which drives more of these communities where innovation is not a constraint to um, innovation. Uh, or I'm sorry, where bandwidth is not a constraint on, on innovation. And that, that that's just a really important concept, and the country needs a critical mass of communities where uh, basically kids are experimenting with the future all the time and effectively inventing it. We also need to I think figure out a way of delivering much higher bandwidth to um, um, the um, uh, rural areas. Uh, I think the some of the things the FCC did on universal service reform were very important and very timely, but I think that there are some long-term issues there about the relationship between wireless and wired um, that create a a difficult picture uh, later this decade in terms of the ability of rural communities to have um, uh, really high-speed networks. And I think that the traditional solution of simply going to the federal government and saying, you have to subsidize this with more money, is simply not going to work. So we have to find a new uh, solution to that. But right. And I think there are solutions that can be found. But I, I do think that the, um, uh, the real upside is in a massive accelerated transition of uh, all government services, all public goods and services to the digital platform, and whether that be a function of, um, you know, what uh, what's the Khan Academy is doing in education and many, many other startups. Indeed, as we talk about in the book, one of the hardest hottest areas for startups in Silicon Valley is about bandwidth-delivered education, which is about a $5.2 trillion market worldwide. Or um, bandwidth-delivered medicine. Actually, there's a big conference uh, here in D.C. this week on um, M-Medicine. Uh, mobile medicine it's going to be these are going to be huge huge markets and i think it's really important for the country to have a strategy for how the united states leads in delivering healthcare education public safety all government services um over this bandwidth
1: mm-hmm.
0: because so it's also an with... exportable markets uh, that is to oh, say right, once uh, we're good at it we can export it to other countries um Help them, uh, and also help ourselves.
1: Mm-hmm. So to roll specifically then to the to the question I got here in the um, in the chat room, we seem to have a mindset. And again, you know, it, there there are a lot of mindset issues. I think with some of this, right? We've always done things a certain way, and we will always do them a certain way. And the trick is always trying to figure out how to come in and change those mindsets before you really start to see pro- programmatic changes. So what, the, what this one is describing, what I have seen and continue to see, are um, local governments that give priority to economic development projects that increase property taxes. And that's when someone called in saying, you know, we can't get any effort for any kind of project except for one that will bring in new businesses that will build new structures and pay more property taxes. And even if you had a program to put you know five hundred unemployed people to work from their homes if they can't if the city can't see the translation from that to property taxes, they have little or no interest in in, in the initiative and I've seen this in a number of places there's some variation on this way of thinking um is this again you know do we do we influence this from Washington? do we set up programs in some way to try to wean people away from this way of thinking i mean how do we how do we get past that hurdle?
0: Well, it reminds me of that wonderful line from the great business um, consultant and prophet Peter Drucker, who famously said, "The greatest danger in times of turbulence is not the turbulence; it is to respond to the turbulence with yesterday's logic."
1: Right. And it does exactly. seem to
0: me that in a, a kind of a, a, in an information economy, uh, focusing on Uh, the property tax That is to say we're not interested in bringing in a new industry unless they're building a new building Um, is a little bit short-sighted. Though I would also note that there's a lot of, um, I I haven't seen authoritative studies yet because I think it's it's too difficult to do, but I think we'll see it in the next few years. There's certainly anecdotal evidence and some stories to suggest that if you increase the bandwidth in, in a community, you increase the property values that that a home that has access to much faster bandwidth, um, I think I saw a fiber-to-the-home study that suggested its order of magnitude worth $5,000 more uh, on average than a home that doesn't have that. And if you consider that, you know, the cost of linking up that home, uh, the capital, I think of Verizon said it was doing it at about $1,500, I suspect Google is doing it for far less. You really see an economic opportunity if that's the if that's the measure there's a really uh, there's a wonderful what you know wall Street folks would think of as an arbitrage opportunity uh because uh for fifteen hundred bucks you can create an extra five thousand dollars of value well there's nothing nothing wrong with that um mm-hmm. uh if you know but there there are a lot of different variables. But in any event I I agree with the premise of the question. Uh as to the answer of how do you do it? Well, you know, Craig, you and I've been in this uh, doing this for a while. Uh I would argue your show plays an important role. I would argue mm-hmm. that, you know, the speeches that you give, the articles you write play an important role. Uh at the you know, to me, part of what we're trying to do with kick.u is create an environment in which we um, eventually get to a tipping point. What I mean by that is um, the, the, the Google Fiber Project actually, and in, in, you know, Google deserves all the credit for it, but it came out of discussions that we were having in the process of the broadband plan where one of the things, and Google is one of the companies raising it, that we were looking at because we had the benefit of being able to look at things from a five- to ten-year perspective. But one of the things we were looking at was, what are potential problems down the road that we're not thinking about? And one of them was, you know, we actually uh, we have higher speeds than a lot of countries, but we don't have the fastest speeds. And so how are we going to develop, how are we going to have our people develop a next generation of bandwidth-based applications if they're not working on that next generation of network connectivity? Mm-hmm. And out of that discussion, Google said, hey, we'll step up and we'll build one. And we said, that's great but one community and being dependent on one company is not a policy it's it's right. great what they're exactly. doing so but but we wanted to have it be in order of magnitude a dozen places or maybe two dozen places uh whatever it takes for people to develop it and you know what uh we're only going to know this in retrospect but if we can accelerate genomic medicine Uh, By a couple of years, we'll save, you know, countless lives. Mm -hmm. Um, So that's the kind of thing we want to do. If we can accelerate high-definition two-way video, which enables, you know, kids in uh, uh, certain communities who don't have access to great physics classes to take physics and be inspired by uh, all kinds of uh, different things, You know that's going to be great if we can utilize this greater connectivity uh, and figure out new ways of uh, manufacturing with the great do-it-yourself movement. These are the you you. In some ways, you can always look back and say that would have happened anyway. But if you can accelerate that process, uh, lots of good things happen.
1: Mm -hmm. I think we're also still struggling with issues such as um, getting. Um, I don't know, folks at, at a local level to understand the vision, but also trying to figure out how to um, address the private sector versus um, public good aspect of all of this. I mean, in in the last week and a half that I, that I was in, well, the week I was in ottawa but, you know, leading up to that and being there, a lot of the, um, <clears throat> I think some of the issue there is companies need to make a a profit. And it is very difficult to to make the the case. And you and I have discussed this, obviously, a number of times, but it still seems like we keep coming back to uh, the hurdle. Now, one thing that was interesting about uh, in, in the course of the discussion in Iowa is that Iowa has some weird tax laws that basically are a disincentive for um, people to put in broadband because you actually get taxed based on the property that your physical infrastructure crosses. So it's as if you went out and bought a bunch of land, even though you're maybe using, you know, the public right-of-way or whatever, but you basically have to pay, it's like a tax on top of your standard tax. And so it makes it very difficult, particularly for smaller companies, to try to, you know, to get past that. And uh, and I'm guessing that this is what you mean by, uh, you know, the the tax incentive, the creating a a, uh, uh, a greater investment uh, rather than discouraging um, investment. Am I correct?
0: Right. Well, one of the things that characterizes the American communications um, networks, and this was not always true, particularly in other countries, though it's true in most countries today, is that it is a simultaneously uh, dominated by private investment very little public investment in the in the actual network and yet public policy requires of that private investor uh... certain things to serve the public interest that it does not require um of other private sector uh... entities you know for example We require connectivity to 911. We require cable systems to offer peg channels and local access channels. Um, uh, There's a variety of different things that we obligate phone companies to do, such as carrier of last resort obligations. We don't require McDonald's to have Wi-Fi, though, interestingly, they do. Um, uh, And and actually, I was talking with a reporter uh, today about how in certain communities uh, McDonald's becomes what we had hoped the libraries would be um in terms of access for kids who don't have access at home to do their homework um because they stay up they, they McDonald's is open later uh which is kind of an, an interesting thing but we but that's that's McDonald's choice um mm-hmm. in the case of telcos and cable companies we often require them to do certain things I think that we're going to have to rethink the nature of what you might think of as this social contract, uh, and I use that term very generically, um, uh, between communications providers and, uh, the, and, and public policy. Um, mm-hmm. The economic assumptions that underlay the original deals are probably not true, but the public need for communications networks that uh, serve a variety of purposes that are not um, not pure market, uh, that, that continues. So we're going to have to figure that out. I think that that's one of the things the next FCC will have to do. And there's a proceeding being teed up that's basically referred to as the transition to IP that I think provides a vehicle to think about a number of those things but i think if you look at you know the deal between kansas city and google it's a very interesting model I'm not sure it'll work for all communities but it's a very interesting model for the utilization of rights of ways um but also flexibility in terms of how the community regulates uh that enabled google to have favorable economics to deploy that network
1: mm-hmm. and 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 some of this comes down to a A series of trade-offs I mean There are Folks who There's actually An interesting discussion Going on In the chat room Right now About the incentive Things right Because there was An article in the New York Times About the fact that States and localities Offer uh, Incentives for Businesses to move in And then The telecom sector Is no different Maybe greater I'm not sure But You know, among those lists of of companies that the Times covered, you know, there was Verizon and Comcast and AT&T, and all of them are getting getting subsidies. So you say, great, well, we need to have them come in. But then they come in and then they leave. And then where are you after they leave? Or they come in and they get subsidies and they don't end up delivering the type of broadband that, you know, that was expected or you have, like, AT&T wanting to have fewer obligations to everyone than, than not. So you so you have this sort of you know back and forth. You have you know the the discussion of you know is public policy relative to telecom companies being written in the best interest of communities. Is it being written in the best interest of you know the lobbyists who have you know greater presence when it comes time to do policy, and and everything just seems to just be a constant back and forth of you know trade offs. I mean I, I guess we're sort of I don't know I shouldn't say doomed to this, but we are. We have to expect that this is going to be the process. there's going to always be trade offs yeah,
0: but oh, like why is that a bad thing i mean here 's the way I think of it you know at, at every point in time uh, you're at a different um, a, a moment in kind of the evolution of these things what i think where I think we are is number one that the economic assumptions that underlie how we regulated telephone companies a hundred years ago, cable companies fifty years ago, wireless companies thirty years ago. These these are no longer valid, and um, we need to, to have a serious conversation about the right uh, relationship between those who are investing a lot of money and have a reasonable expectation of return and those communities on which the economy of the future – they know that the economy of the future rides on this network. So. There's a both sides have a really important stake in it, and that's that's perfectly fine. right now, I would uh, prefer what we have, then i would I would be utterly opposed to the federal government sweeping in and saying, this is the way it needs to be for everybody. I really um, you know I like that Mayor Bloomberg is saying the city of New York needs broadband in a way that you know currently the market's not delivering certain things. we're going to take certain steps to improve broadband in New York. Um, right. Mayor Emanuel in Chicago is doing the same thing. Uh, very interesting, the RFI that they did. Very interesting, the responses they're going to get. Can't wait to see how they play it out. I might note that GigDot, you, uh last month we announced, or I guess it was now two months ago, uh, announced Please, a project that involved. Yeah.
1: Let me know if you want to say I have a call and I want
0: to see if I can pick this up. I'm calling. Sure.
1: So, I'm sorry, as you were saying, right, you don't want to have the government come in and do the one-size thing. I business.
0: don't want to have the federal government. I mean, I think the federal government, there are a number of things they can do to help, and we talk about that right. in the book. Um, right. But fundamentally, I like the notion of individual mayors trying to figure out what, what their community needs. You know, I'm. I think that there are a number of communities that really – will want to have what we might think of as bandwidth innovation zones, that is to say areas of their communities that have um, huge bandwidth, very cheap, just like some communities had huge access to water or electricity, very cheap. A hundred years ago, that was critically important, and in some ways, particularly with electricity, it still is. Anyway, I... I, um, I, I think now is the time for experimentation. I don't think anybody should put their feet in cement because we don't know exactly what's going to work best. Mm-hmm. But it, it's it's delightful to see different folks experimenting.
1: Okay. I'm trying to call... A, you know, I think we're having some general tech issues here with the problem trying to get connected with you, Blair, earlier, and I'm having trouble getting this... Uh, this caller's uh, audio to come through, all right? So Mm -hmm. we, unfortunately, are going to have to hang up on that one. And um, let me get back to, uh, you know, what you're talking about as far as, you know, what Mayor Bloomberg wants to do and what uh, the Chicago mayor wants to do. I mean, I think that that is really the big cities doing what a lot of small communities have been trying to do. I mean, that's basically what if you look at all these community broadband networks, in essence, they are a situation of, you know, people – I'm sorry, communities wanting to, to take charge and do their own thing. It seems like, though, uh, the impediment to that effort is that in so many states the, um, the, the, the industry has made it very difficult for one aspect, not all aspects, but one aspect, which is the, the community-owned network. Um, and in some cases, you know, the community, has in, you know, either the public utility. In some cases, it's the, you know, the the, the local government, the IT department for the city. Um, and once you take that off, and you make all this noise and bluster and so forth, you seem it seems like it discourages what you're what you're talking about. And I, you know, again, Nick, you and I have talked about this. but I'd like to get your thoughts again on you know how aggressive should uh i don't know the white house or congress or whatever be on allowing communities total latitude with any option that they see fit to be able to bring that to the table
0: well as you know the national broadband plan called for a congress to preempt the states um from restricting local governments from doing what they wanted to do, uh, developing broadband networks. This, uh, depending on how you read history and law, uh, was an error that was caused by um, either a well-written or poorly written (laughs) section of the 96 Act. Um, We thought, uh, I remember from from our time, that 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 was written in a way that... um, made it clear that states could not interfere with uh, competitive offerings. Uh, And there was a question mark about whether uh, a city doing something would be considered a competitive offering, and ultimately the courts ruled that the city was not included. I'm trying to remember a lot of legal uh, cases from the the last decade uh, and actually going back even two. But but at the end of the day, 18 states, I believe, have foot restrictions and that make it difficult for communities to do that. I think that's unfortunate. Um, I think that if I were on a city council, I would probably be reluctant to ever vote for a city going into that business, but I would always want to have the option to do so because, you know, in a high fixed-cost market, you're going to have a limited number of competitors, and you want to have some negotiating room and if you can't you can't offer an alternative you got no negotiating room so you know reasonable minds can differ about that uh, but i do think that as a as a matter of you know prediction congress is not going to act on that recommendation of the broadband plan so you're going to have those communities that uh, are restricted having said that i think there's a lot that communities even in those states can do and furthermore as we see communities such as a Chattanooga or such as a Lafayette or such as uh, Bristol or some others do various things, if these things prove out, as you and I probably believe they will, that it turns out that much greater bandwidth does improve economic development, I think other communities are going to say, hey, we need this too. And that's all the good. And then I think the state legislatures may have to rethink their uh, earlier decisions. But again, whereas I think I would be in favor of the federal government preempting other restrictions, I certainly respect those who believe the states um, should have a right to restrict their cities who are instrumentalities of the state uh, from doing that. That's you know There are a lot of different ways to come to a conclusion uh, that even if you don't like the results of the conclusion, you understand why people in a very principled way um, believe that uh, the state should have a right to do that,
1: right? And I guess that becomes a philosophical uh, issue. I know one of the people that's been trying to call in uh, has some has some clear views on that because they're involved in Massachusetts in, the, in, in the, one of the projects, or you know, being close to the the project that's being there, the Open Cape project.
2: Well, yes, it's yes a, correct.
1: Oh, Chuck, you are there. Great.
0: Welcome.
2: <laughs> been Chuckie, sitting here Blair, very Blair, Blair, quietly biting my tongue. <laughs> Don't
0: bite your tongue. Tell us. What's up?
2: <laughs> well, um, uh, I tend to agree with you. No, can Claire. I just ask her really
0: quickly, who, who are you?
2: I'm Chuck Sherwood. I'm a Patients uh, <laughs> oh, hey, community media consultant.
0: I've, uh, I've heard of you.
2: Yes. <laughs> <laughs> sure you have. Um, yeah, it's always a double edged story with Chuck. <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I tend to agree that oftentimes a, a, a municipality getting directly involved in running its own network uh, does have downsides. But we do have to keep in mind that, uh, and you did mention this, that when a municipal utility or a nonprofit are created to go ahead and provide that arm's length relationship with the municipality, that that really becomes a different story. And as we see constantly, um, particularly the wonderful research that Chris Mitchell has done Uh, that more and more of these community networks or muni networks based in municipal utilities are really the way to go and particularly, I I was intrigued when I I got the notice earlier today that you were tying broadband infrastructure into smart grids, which I think uh, is really the way to go. I mean, if, if there's There's a a use for them that is a no-brainer. It's all about uh, how do we go ahead and conserve energy, how do we manage all of the new distributed renewable energies uh, that are coming online. A couple months ago, my associate Rita Stull uh, sent me a copy uh of Jeremy Rifkin's The Third Industrial Revolution uh which I'm still plotting my way through but really emphasizes that this is where we're going for the for the 21st century and I'm just curious your thoughts on where Rifkin is headed on all of this
0: well, I, I I actually was at the bookstore this uh, weekend,
2: uh,
0: picking up lots of books for the holidays for both myself and uh, and others. And I was looking at Jeremy's book and thinking, should I buy this? And 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 I had a full stack at that moment in time, and I just decided not to. And now you're making me think I should go back to the poetry oh, tour I you, or, yeah, or you, go you back on Amazon. Absolutely
2: I'm a, love it. <laughs>
0: yeah, so I'll uh, I'll have to go pick that up.
2: Um, yeah, well, you might want to. Um, I I you know,
0: yeah or or, or just, just you know download on the Kindle you get it or whatever really but cheap on but Amazon I think right now yeah <laughs> look I think it's uh uh this is why um some people come to life with a high level of certainty about everything they do some people you know um come to life with like constantly questioning constantly experimenting constantly um calibrating you can have very strong principles but You know, some people are fact driven and and others are more philosophical driven. Chris Mitchell and I have had numerous conversations over the years, and I always like reading his stuff. I think he's a very thoughtful guy. He has been critical of some of the stuff we have done with Gig.U because he believes that the path forward is, you know, community ownership. And to date, all of the projects have involved communities but have not involved community ownership. Uh, that it's always been a private investor. It's always been the kind of a private term and project. Look, uh, you know, this is why you 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 want to have multiple experiments and you want to see what works. I used to be um, in a long, <laughs> generally forgotten period of my life. I was uh, I was a lawyer for a lot of local governments and and did bond work for them. I think if you're talking about parking garages and you're talking about certain kind of traditional government projects. You want to have the city doing that. In some cases, you know, you actually lease out the parking garage and things like that. But in a situation that involves technology, um, uh, rapid change, I think that putting the you you have both an investment problem and you have a long-term management problem if you put it uh, in the community. There are counterexamples to that, and, I again, I appreciate the work that Chris and his group has done. Um, most of the examples he cites are rather small communities, and I think that there is there are, for a variety of reasons, that's different. But I also think we should acknowledge that in the United States, we... Um, we are both uh, the, in some ways the beneficiary in many ways the beneficiary of an historic process in which we had two privately funded wires going into 90% of the homes in our country and to turn our backs on that um, you know, some have suggested that we should do what Australia did um, I, I'm opposed to that for a variety of reasons but I, I would hope that the advocates of that would acknowledge that at least in Australia, they only had to buy out one network. Effectively, we would have to buy out well, two. There was that, and that's, a, that's like true. that's a really big fact, right? Um, and we'll see. We'll see. Maybe Australia will prove that this, you know, a government-owned and operated uh, fundamental infrastructure um, is the way to go. Uh, I think Israel is doing an RFI process or an RFP process that's due pretty soon. Uh, I don't think they'll go the way of Australia, but I think it'll be interesting to see how they do go. But, look, this is – I think we're early in this game. What is really important and and, and what drove parts of the broadband plan, and basically this was the part that after I did the broadband plan really both perplexed me and interested me, was how do we get the next generation of a wireline upgrade at a moment in time where, for various reasons that have a lot to do with investment – it's very difficult for either the cable industry or the telephone industry to justify a new round of upgrades. That's uh um that's driven a lot of what we've been doing with Gig U and Air U, um, and, right, and we'll and, see and how it I, plays I, out.
2: And I find both of those uh, uh you know really really interesting uh, experiments uh, because when in I guess it was in 2000 I attended a, a Canary conference in which uh, once I walked into the conference I felt like I'd walked into the uh, control room of Battle Galactica you know meeting all of those folks and the real thrust of the conference was all about how universities colleges and local municipalities and counties should band together to go ahead and build out the infrastructure that was needed. And uh, I I've, I was really delighted as you all started announcing that. Now, one other issue I, I, I do want to raise at this point, uh, because, of course, uh, I was madly typing away when I suddenly heard something about peg access in there. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't quite uh, sure yeah. what you had said, but I, I'm pretty much getting the thrust of it. But but do keep in mind the cable industry always understood the value of peg access uh, and was willing to pay franchise fees based upon their cable TV revenue uh, to support all of that because there is – no greater source of content for the new networks, whether it's on the cable channels themselves or now over the particularly last 10 years online uh, for local news and information, that uh, if there was not peg access with the devastation that has occurred with the consolidation of radio stations uh... and with the collapse of the print news industry uh... for folks to receive it and we have to come up with a solution in the rewrite of the telecom act to ensure that the use of the public rights away must be paid for by all bitstream providers regardless of whether they're using the public rights away or the public spectrum. that's And I've written a whole paper four years or five years ago about this uh, that was in the NATOA Journal that I'd, I'll send to you.
0: Yeah, no, I'd love to see it. Um, you can send it to me here at the Aspen Institute, um, uh, and I, I would love to read it. I would say I'm not quite sure I understand what you're saying about PEG access. Are you saying that market forces would cause cable to do it anyway, or that we we need to retain that in whatever happens we, we, in terms well, of the agreement?
2: We, we uh, market, you know, I, I I always get a little constricted around the throat when I talk about market forces because I don't really believe there's free markets. Uh, I believe in (laughs) fair markets. But um, the cable industry did understand the value of having that local programming. Now, as we do remember, for many years, they were the producers of a tremendous amount of that local programming. But given their economic model, they could not generate sufficient advertising revenue to go ahead and cover the cost of that production. However, the rather low cost that they're paying or the use of the public rights-of-way compared to the amount of money they're hoovering up, uh, they get a tremendous amount of local programming that really does continue to differentiate them from satellite. And if we look at the example of Verizon, uh at Verizon, once they came in into the cable biz through FiOS, uh, really understood the value of that and actually treats Peg Access channels much better than the cable industry does. So, I mean, you, we do have to understand that both of them do understand that it's really efficient to have Peg Access nonprofits produce that programming because that programming is of value to the viewers.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Right. And yeah. we should uh, probably get ready – got about five minutes or so left. I mean, I see where we're, where we're going. Yes, yeah. Thank you very much for calling in. I mean, I appreciate being <laughs> – Okay, getting... okay exactly. great. Thanks for calling in. And I'll make sure I send you that article, Blair. I'd love
0: well, to read it. Thanks so much.
2: Excellent. So in the five minutes uh,
1: that we've got left here, you and I are going to be at this uh, event on uh, this roundtable on Friday. So yes. from your perspective, what do you think will be the greatest impact that this will have in sort of the policy discussion mode? Because we're bringing in some you know, fairly well-versed you know, versed representative body of people who understand the economic impact that broadband has on communities. Um, but, from the audience perspective, will they hear about this afterwards? Will they see the you know the results of some of the stuff we deal with there i mean, what's your thought on how the the general public will either hear about or benefit from this particular event?
0: Um, well I, I don't I don't know enough about the particular event uh and I am skeptical that any event occurring in Washington DC on a Friday between Thanksgiving and Christmas actually uh <laughs> will gather much uh, momentum for the general public. Um I very much look forward to it. I think it's part of an ongoing conversation. But look, I think we're, you know, you and I are deeply immersed in this, but the most of the general public uh in in my from my point of view um we're, we're still kind of – we're either in the early innings or we're in spring training on all of this. And I kind of think we're a little bit in spring training. I think okay. there's some very exciting things that over the next 24 months will emerge. But I don't think um, people view the lack of faster, cheaper, better bandwidth as a top priority for the government or a top priority in their lives right now. Um, in part because of success, we, in fact, over the last 15 years, have massively increased the amount of bandwidth people have, particularly on the mobile side. Uh, and I think the emergence of LTE networks are very exciting. Uh, the United States benefits from having about 70% of the worldwide subscribers, and we lead in application development and all kinds of things as a result. So um, I don't think it's um, you know you don't get you don't get a lot of credit in Washington for the crises you avoid. Uh, and I think what we're trying to do is not get to that point where suddenly we find we're massively behind the rest of the world. I know there are some people who think we're already way behind. I, I disagree with that. We're not leading, um, uh, but I do think we're we're leading in in ways that matter the most. Certainly in terms of the application development, um, and again, very excited about things happening in education and healthcare. But um, but. But you and I just have to be a little more patient and actually get some uh, big wins, uh, which I think, you know, 12 months from now, people, when people see what uh, a gigabit has meant for Kansas City, um, The you know, people might be thinking differently.
1: Mm-hmm. So in uh, sort of a one-minute wrap-up, do you feel that we have an issue that people just don't understand enough of the impact to move past the fact that, well, yes, we're not leading. You know, we're—I uh, mean, we're not be as behind, but you know, we're not there yet. But is the problem that people don't understand that there's a there? You know, there's sort of a goal um, that would make this all worthwhile, but they just don't understand it yet.
0: Well, you know, look, I, I think that uh, Henry Ford once apparently said that if he had asked his customers what they wanted, he they would have said faster horses.
1: Ah, uh, yes. Uh huh
0: and i think what we're talking about is something um that is is qualitatively different but it has to be proven out and it's it it does take a little bit of time uh and we have to see what happens when what happens when we put you know, gigabit connectivity in 4K cameras in senior centers, does it really reduce the times that they they, people go to the uh, doctor? I think it probably will over time, but it doesn't immediately. We have to figure out what happens when we can do genetic sequencing in 47 seconds instead of eight weeks, um, uh, as someone else is trying to do. So, you know, this is a good period of experimentation. But I don't blame the public for not saying this is the top priority. Look, we still have eight percent unemployment. We still have a lot of other things. The point of the book was to say, not about the it was not really uh, the networks are important, but there are lots of different ways in which we can utilize technology to deliver critical public goods faster, cheaper, better. Those uh, figuring out how to do that ought to be on the table as we talk about the future of the American economy.
1: Great. Right. And with that we're we are going to wrap but thank you again for uh for being a guest. I look forward to uh seeing you in a few days and uh you know, we do some more blue sky stuff and, and keep moving this ball forward. So thank Great. you a lot. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much.
1: Yeah. Uh, all right. right. And thanks right. to our audience for uh listening in today. Uh it's been a very good uh, conversation. We will be talking more about broadband and uh, economic development over the next uh, next couple of weeks as we wind down and get ready for Christmas. So um, you know, stay tuned, come back, listen, talk, participate, uh, and thank you very much for all of your your time. Have a great day, and we'll talk again soon.